0: I laid on my back in the children's area at Lakeshore Church in New Orleans. And some of you remember this moment if you were on that mission trip. I lay there staring at the ceiling with a bag of ice wrapped around my neck because I decided that day that I was going to drink way more coffee than water. And I decided that day I was going to just sort of man up and spend the day out in the hot, blazing sun and humidity of New Orleans. I mean, I'm from the South. What does this what does this heat and humidity have on me? I'm used to this. I was born and raised in this. And outside with a group of other men, we had spent most of the day digging a storm drain that was in the street in front of the church, Lakeshore, where we were serving, this church plant that we've helped partner with. And I think toward the middle of the day, about eight of us began experiencing symptoms of heat exhaustion, and there were a few that said, you need to go lay down. I was like, I'm fine. It's not a big deal. Everybody is panting, trying to breathe, and I'm going to toughen it out. Before long, I was on my back with a bag of ice around my neck, laying down in the children's Uh, Department of Lakeshore being threatened we're about to take you to the hospital, which was something I was not going to do. I would have died on the floor of the children's department before that happened. I remember thinking, what in the world am I doing? Who even cares about that storm drain? Like, why in the world would we spend our day outside digging and digging and and wearing ourselves out for such what seemed in that moment a stupid, meaningless task? Now, our philosophy of ministry, when we go on these short-term mission trips, that's what it looks like a lot of times. We go to local churches in different areas, and, and we partner with them in doing needed work, work that's needed on their facilities and their community, work that they just can't get to in the moment because they're doing ministry. And we go and we do these things to free the local church up for ministry. And there's VBS and there are evangelistic opportunities, but 85 to 90 percent of our time on these mission trips is spent doing things like that, digging out, Street drains, pressure washing, tearing out walls, cleaning carpet. And often on these trips, I'm asking, what am I doing here? You know, I, got, I could be preparing a sermon. I could be preaching to a group of people. I could be doing evangelism. And here I am with a shovel digging in the street. Why in the world is this, is this really worth it? And I know many who go on these trips, you, you get to points where you're like, what are we doing? Shouldn't we be sharing the gospel with people 24-7? Shouldn't we be hosting big events in parks? And yet, our philosophy is we want to partner with the people who live here. And we don't want to just go and do some things and leave and leave nothing behind. And so we get involved in the work that's needed, and it's a, it's actually a picture of what the local church looks like here on a weekly basis. Think about this moment and all of the tasks that go into bringing us to this moment. There's lots of organizations or organization. There's paying bills, there's meetings, there's cleaning, there's parking cars, there's calling volunteers, there's planning. And it's not just here at church. Think about what goes into your witness in Richmond, Kentucky, so that you can live here and 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 so that you can witness the gospel in this city. You have to have a job. You have to go to class. You have to drive to school. You have to pay bills. You have to move boxes of peanut butter at work. You have to order parts for cars. You have to change diapers. You have to meet with parents and students. And and most of what you do on a daily basis is just ordinary work, ordinary task. And the struggle in the Christian life is trying to connect that to the glory of God. And the struggle often is to ask, is this really worth it? is is the work really worth it. And in Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4, we see the work is worth the fight. In chapter 3, we see everyone must work. That's the picture painted in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we see everyone must fight. Now remember Nehemiah and Ezra actually go together as one book. And this is post-exile history. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and holds the Jews captive and sends them to other foreign nations and other countries. And then a king named Cyrus, a Persian king, takes over and he begins to allow the people of God to return back to Jerusalem. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a man named Zerubbabel who builds the temple. We see a priest named Ezra, and he rebuilds the community, the people of God. And then we get to a man named Nehemiah who is committed to building the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And I want to remind you why this wall is important. For Nehemiah, the glory of God is at stake in rebuilding this wall. God had promised His people that He would dwell with them in a place, that His presence would rest with them in a place. And in Jerusalem, there is that place where the temple of God and the presence of God is to be. And He's going to bless His people in that place. But God also promised to curse the enemies of God. And while the wall in Jerusalem had begun to be rebuilt... Enemies are attacking Jerusalem. After they've returned home, the wall started to go up. The enemies rushed in again. And the question for Nehemiah is Is God a liar? He promised to bring our people back home and protect them. But is that really what's going on? The wall is broken down, Jerusalem looks like a pit of despair. Is God a liar? God's glory is at stake in the rebuilding of this city. God's glory is at stake in the protection of his people. And so Nehemiah says, for the glory of God, I will get to work. I will rebuild the wall. I will call the people of God together for the glory of God. And last week we saw that this Persian king, Artaxerxes, actually is convinced to send Nehemiah on an all-expense-paid mission trip back to Jerusalem. The Persian government's going to pay for it. And then we get to chapter 3, and I'm going to summarize it. And I felt guilty about this all week long. This is not how we do things around here. You know I love the details and working through the details. But I wanted you to see the big picture of both of these chapters And in chapter 3, we see the people, when Nehemiah arrives to Jerusalem, they begin to get to work. They're moving rocks. They're bolting wood, rebuilding gates. In chapter 3, there are 38 individuals that are mentioned, but there are 42 different people groups that are mentioned throughout chapter 3 of Nehemiah. And these people stretch across two and a half miles of wall that they're building. They're picking up rocks. They're bolting wood to stone. They're repairing these ten city gates. And as you move through the chapter, you see father, son, and even daughters are working on the wall. You see the high priest is engaged. You see, priests are engaged with the goldsmith and the perfumers, the essential oil group. They're there too. But you read through chapter 3 and you see this phrase over and over again. Next to Him. Next to Him. Next to Him. After them. After them. After them. And the people of God in all of their diversity are gathered together doing work. And there's only one group of nobles, and the text says they would not bend their necks. They would not submit to the work. But in chapter 3, we see everyone must work. And that leads us to chapter 4, where we see everyone must fight. And the point today is that the work is worth the fight. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when ta- Sanballat, and we talked about him last week, he is a Sumerian governor, and he is opposing Nehemiah. His people were some of the first people cast out of the promised land when the people of God entered. And he has met Nehemiah on the way to Jerusalem, and he is opposing him. And yet he hears here that the building of the wall continues to go up, and now the people of God are working. And notice verse 1 continues, and he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He is full of emotion. He is losing his power, and he is throwing a temper tantrum 15 miles away. And notice, he is jeering the Jews. He is mocking them from a distance. Verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria he, holds a, he holds a ra- Samaria, he holds a rally for all of his people, his family, the armies of Samaria. And notice what he says. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish it up in one day? All of these things that he is hearing from Jerusalem. Oh, they're working so hard. Are they going to build that themselves? Maybe they'll offer a sacrifice to their God. And this, this rubble of a wall will supernaturally rebuild itself. Do y'all really think these Jews are going to be able to rebuild this wall? Will they revive stones out of heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that. Now, this is an insult to God. He, he, he's, he's thinking about the history of Yahweh and all of the supernatural stories that go along with Israel. And he's saying, I guess the rebuilding of this wall is going to be supernatural. And then verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. Again, this is another one of the enemies of God that have gathered together with the Sumerians. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And here we see he has rallied other enemies together. He, he, he's held a meeting and he is speaking to the armies and to the people. And here you have his guest speaker, Tobiah, and he gets up there and he begins to jeer the Jews. He says, If a little fox walked across that wall, it would crumble. These Jews, they're no craftsmen. Who do they think they are? And notice Nehemiah's response in verse 4 Hero, Our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. God, the way they despise us, would you despise them? Would you turn back the very things they are saying and that they have done to us on them Would you plunder their lands? Would you hold them captive in foreign lands like they have done to us and like they cheer on to be done to us? Verse 5. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked... Notice the phrase, they have provoked you in cursing the people of God They are cursing God himself. They have provoked you in mocking the people of God. They are mocking you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, it's shocking, right? Let's let that prayer settle. And by the way, the Holy Spirit put that prayer in the book of Nehemiah. And it's there. And he doesn't hedge he doesn't make it well that's not really what I meant you don't get to the end of the chapter and Nehemiah repents I should have never prayed that I lost my temper would you please forgive no it's just there God judge them they're mocking us do not forgive them of their sins judge them condemn them destroy them There it is. And we begin to see Nehemiah's redneck emotion. Surrendered to the glory of God, though, right? This is an imprecatory prayer that we see throughout Scripture. We see it in the Psalms. And it is a prayer of judgment upon your enemies. Specifically, the enemies of God. Now, compare the way Nehemiah responds as opposed to the enemies. Petty, insults, mockery. Ancient keyboard courage, something you would see on Twitter going back and forth. And Nehemiah just stops and he prays to God. But he prays a prayer of violence upon his enemies in the enemies of God. Instead of sending a mean tweet, he prays in light of God's promises. Now what is the theology behind this? God's glory is always wrapped up in a commitment to his people. To Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. The nation of Israel, I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. This is a promise from God to Abraham. And now we see that God's glory is tied up in Jesus in a very similar way. God promises To bless those who bless Jesus, who believe in Jesus. But when we read Revelation, we also see that God promises to curse those who curse Jesus. And the blessings of Jesus are wrapped up in the church, Jesus' people. And we see to oppose the church is to oppose Jesus. This is why when the Apostle Paul gets saved, he is headed out to kill Christians Men and women of God were stoned in his honor, and he is headed out for another day of work. And Jesus blinds him and knocks him off of his horse, and the first thing the Lord Jesus said to the Apostle Paul was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me In killing Christians in persecuting the church, Jesus says, "This is about me. You are opposing me." Saul? Now, it's right to feel righteous indignation when the supremacy of Jesus is opposed. It's right. It's good, it's healthy. Now, I'm not saying you should feel righteous indignation toward your haters all my haters out there. Who are your haters? I don't know. Or to the guy in your neighborhood who's breaking the homeowners association rules. And you drive by that junky car out in the middle of the street. And you you get angry. It's not necessarily righteous indignation and you should not pray that his house be plundered. (laughs) But it's okay when when Christians have their heads cut off in other countries to feel righteous indignation and to be angry about that. It's okay when missionaries are sent home by wicked, godless governments and to feel righteous indignation. Why? Jesus himself is being opposed As his church is being opposed, you should feel that emotion that Nehemiah feels here. Now, what's so important to realize here is this isn't personal and this isn't petty. This is about God's glory. God is being opposed. And that's why it's so important to latch all of your plans and purposes and goals to God's glory and his faithfulness and his plan. And when you are latched to His plan, it's okay, and it's right, and you should pray for the enemies of God to be removed at times, because it's about His plan and His glory, not about you. And so that's a good thing to ask. Are my plans and purposes about God's glory? Am I feeling this emotion because I have been personally offended and personally insulted? Or has the glory of God been attacked? Or is it God who's being insulted and mocked? It's a good question to ask. And it helps line up where our heart is. But it's not always some cheesy Jesus loves you and I'm trying prayer in response to those who oppose the gospel. You should pray. That if those who oppose the church do not repent, that they would be brought to justice. That's okay to pray. You should pray for your enemies to believe and, and understand and experience the forgiveness of the gospel. But in places where the church's mission is opposed, it's also okay to pray that leaders be removed from office, voted out. That's okay. Because you're committed to Jesus, you're committed to his gospel. Paul and Galatians prayed against the false teachers that they would be damned. Because they preached a gospel that minimized Jesus and deceived his church. And if they would not repent, remove them. Faithfulness, though, here involves trusting God. Offering that emotion to God. And getting back to work. Which is what we see in verse 6. So we built the wall in response to opposition, mockery. Nehemiah prays, "Vengeance is the Lord," and that's what I, vengeance is the Lord's, and that's what I'm praying. Let's get back to work. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height. Now we know at times this wall around Jerusalem was was over forty foot tall. And so they get halfway done. Notice he says, for the people had a mind to work. They were focused on the work. They were getting after it. Verse 7, but when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to close they were angry now notice in the narrative how the enemies of God began to mount we go from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 and all of these people are on the, the north west i'm going to get this backward northwest east south they're all around four corners of Judah and they've gathered around and they begin to see that the gates, the, the places where they could go in and attack Jerusalem at any time, they're being closed up. The walls are being built. And he says, we are halfway done and they get angry. And in verse 8, and they plot it together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now, the plan here is simply Terrorism. We're going we're to issue some attacks in Jerusalem, and we're going to freak them out, and they're going to be confused. Is this coming from the north, the south, the east, the west? Who's doing this? And they're going to begin to get confused, and they're going to get scared. But what do they do? Verse 9, and we prayed. Now, we're beginning to see a theme throughout Nehemiah. Every time there's trouble, every time there's difficulty, Nehemiah prays. Even when his heart is burning with anger toward his enemies, what does he do? Pray. And here the people of God are fearful. And what do they do? They pray to our God. But that's not all they do. They set a guard as protection against them night and day. They prayed and they increased homeland security. This is the theology of Kenny Rogers. Trust God and lock your doors. That's exactly what they're doing here. But notice verse 10, and in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. It's okay to be praying, and now we got security, but now people are getting tired and carrying the burdens amidst paranoia of the enemies of God surrounding us and attacking us. It's wearing them out. And notice there's too much rubble. This is is worse than we ever thought. The disaster is way more than we ever imagined. We're picking up rocks day and night. There's too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Verse 11, and our enemy said, now again, there's this back and forth. And it seems as though at this moment, the enemies of God are getting to the people of God. And so they come on again, and they say, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Again, invoking more fear, terrorism. Verse 12, And at the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said ten times, You must return to us. Now, there are people who had traveled from all over Judah People who really didn't have any personal interest in what was going on in Jerusalem. But they traveled just to help rebuild the wall. And so from the outsides of Jerusalem, people who lived in the country around Jerusalem, they began to hear of the enemies of God, these threats to come and attack Jerusalem. And they send word into Jerusalem for their family members, come back home. This is dangerous work. You're going to be attacked in Jerusalem. And so now the threats have gotten even outside of Jerusalem to their families. But notice Nehemiah's term here, terms, ten times. Now he's exaggerating. It's a figure of speech. What he's saying is, I began to hear this paranoia everywhere I went. I began to hear the grumbling and complaining This is scary. We may be attacked. Our family members want us to come home. They want us to return. And you begin to see here, Nehemiah begins to get a little irritated. You're not going home. We're going to rebuild this wall. You're gonna stay. And so what does he do? So in the lowest parts of space behind the wall, in the places where it was still dilapidated, there still needed to be work, and then in the open places, what does he do? He stationed the people with their clans. He brings the families in, he brings their their kinsmen in, and they gather together in all of these places with their families, but also with swords, their spears, and bows. They're outfitted for battle. And they're gathered with their families who are fearful. And in verse 14, he said, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, this is Nehemiah's brave heart moment. Picture him riding on his horse, painted up maybe. And he gathers the people with their families to to invoke courage in them. I'm going to put you with your wife and your kids and you're going to have to fight for them. This is the way Israel often fought. So they knew what was at stake, their families. And he outfits them in armor, swords, spears, bows. And they're ready for battle. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember Artaxerxes had sent Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah knows he has papers from the Persian king. And so these these are empty threats against Jerusalem. These kings really aren't going to do anything. And so he understands this is just grumbling and complaining and fear and, and unwarranted paranoia. But he says you can hunker down and get ready to fight. But at the end of the day, here is the reason why you shouldn't be fearful. Notice... The Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him. Remember, we've talked about what it means for God to be awesome. He's scary, he's massive. If you stood before him, you would tremble in fear because he would destroy you. He's so big and he's mighty and he's holy and he's righteous, and it should cause you to tremble in your heart. He is dreadful and he is awesome. But notice what Nehemiah says here this awesome God is for us, he's not against us. So you shouldn't be fearful. You shouldn't be scared. He is faithful to you. Increase your security measures, yes, but the dreadful promise keeper is for us. Notice verse 15. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, this seems to calm the people down, seems to relax them. Notice we all return to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the bows, and the coats of mail. They're outfitted in armor. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah. Now at this point, Jerusalem looks like an army base. There are people doing work, but they're doing work with weapons. They're on guard. Nehemiah hosts a concealed carry class. Notice verse 17, those who were building the wall, those who carried the burdens in such a way that each labored on the work. With one hand they held a weapon and with the other they, they held, notice verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. Notice, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Now that's important. Nehemiah says, I'm going to be in charge of the security alarm." I will be the first one to tell you when the enemies of God come to attack. This is just empty threats, by the way. And if they come, I'll tell you. When I get scared and the trumpet blows, then you need to get scared. But until then, get back to work. Verse 19. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet. Rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And notice it just keeps coming back to that work, grab your sword, I'll sound the alarm, but don't be scared. And don't stop working. God will fight for us. God is a faithful warrior. Now, Nehemiah understands something here. Unfaithfulness is rooted in forgetting God's faithfulness. Unfaithfulness is rooted in forgetting and ignoring God's faithfulness. We fear and we whine. And we're ready to quit, whatever it is, for the glory of God, when we forget God's faithfulness. Now think about this group of people. All they know is defeat. All they know is being defeated by their enemies. They're in the midst of a story where they've been held captive for 70 years. And they've just now returned to this dilapidated city. That is the story, Nehemiah. All we know is defeat, captivity, and the victory of our enemies. But Nehemiah knows the bigger story. He knows the story included of the Red Sea. When the people of God were held in bondage in Egypt, and they were led through the sea supernaturally. And once their enemies entered the sea after they had crossed, God allowed the sea to crush Pharaoh and his armies. And what did they say on the other side of the sea? Our God is a warrior, our God fights for us. Nehemiah knows that story. He knows the story where giants are defeated by little shepherd boys with rocks. He knows the story uh, of a time when God allowed the sun to stand still so the enemies of God could could be destroyed by the people of God. And he's saying to them, you now are in a bigger story of God's faithfulness. All you see is defeat in the moment. All you see, that's all you see, and that's why you're despairing. Let's remember who we serve, an awesome God who fights for us. And he has a track record of being awesome and fighting for us. And so Nehemiah will not let them cower and give up at empty threats. And by the way, you're folded into the same story. But you've seen way more of God's faithfulness than Nehemiah ever saw. You've seen this warrior gasping for breath On an instrument of torture. You've seen this warrior in flesh and blood dying for your sins only to walk out of a first century coffin three days later. You've seen something Nehemiah had no idea about. You've seen the God who is a warrior not will fight for you, has fought for you and already defeated your enemies. And so you have to fight unfaithfulness in your life by remembering the gospel. How do I press forward when things are hard and difficult and I'm stressed and I'm worried and I'm worn out? How do I fight through that? Remember God's faithfulness. He's always been faithful. Be faithful. Get back to work. When you're stressed and you're tired, volunteers bail, no one's showing up at BFG. You remember the gospel, that the burden you bear in that moment doesn't compare to the burden Jesus bore for you. He bore your sin in your place, and your greatest burden, the stress, the pressure of life, you will never have to bear your greatest burden. He bore your sin on the cross, and whatever difficulty you're going through in the moment, it isn't hell. So what are you complaining about? I have a friend, anytime I would complain, he would say, sure beats hell, sure beats hell. You could be living in Satan's hotel. I think that was a country western song. And I say that when I get down, I start complaining. What are you scared of? The worst thing that could happen to you has already happened to him, Death. And so when you get worried about what might happen, what people might think, how hard this is, how difficult it is, what the end result might be, people may not like you, it may be awkward, you may be cast out, you may be ostracized. The worst thing in the world that could happen to you has already happened to him, death. He's defeated death for you. What are you scared of? You have no reason to be unfaithful. Press forward. Remembering his faithfulness. Notice verse 21. So we labored at the work. And half of the men, half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the start. All day long. Okay. It seems as though they're not getting it. And they, they're still fearful. They're still scared. But they're still working. And so we put guards out all day and all night. And in verse 22. I said to the people. At that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. Just don't go to sleep. If you're that scared, stay up all night. Bring your sword, bring your shovel, bring your spear, bring your armor. Let's just stay up all night within Jerusalem until we get this done. That these men may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day, 24-7, working, ready to fight, working, ready to fight. In verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servant nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took our cl- off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his side. We didn't have time to go home. We didn't have time to change our clothes. Now notice what Nehemiah does here. He proves he really believes this stuff, right? He, he's not off to himself in some fortress or... No, he's out in the midst of the people I really believe this. I'll be up all day and all night with you. I'm right here. God's been faithful to me. That's what I'm here for. I'll be faithful to you. I ain't leaving till the work's done. And he risked his life, and he's willing to be a part of the grueling work. Now, notice Nehemiah's deep theology of God, God's faithfulness, God is a warrior, becomes gloriously practical That's one of the hopes of the book, is that this deep theology is very practical. So far, it's this. God is a warrior. Trust him. Pray. God is a warrior. Remember him. Preach the gospel. God is a warrior. Get a shovel and a sword and get to work. There you go. Nehemiah's theology. God is faithful. Let's be faithful in our work. Pray, preach, get to work faithfulness before God at times involves a rugged sense of duty where you just keep working, which is really foreign in the climate that we live in today. Everyone wants the easiest way to be the happiest. And if it requires something hard, or if it requires you just plugging along and getting after it, some sense of duty, that's not for me. I got to find something else. But faithfulness is experienced over time, long periods of time, remembering God's faithfulness and continuing to plod and plot. Your best things in life don't happen in the moment in front of you. They happen at times where you stand back and look and see, wow, God has been faithful. Even when I was unfaithful. And notice all of the fruit and goodness he grew in this moment where I thought there was nothing good happening. And sometimes you just have to get back to work for the glory of God. And that's the essence of the fight in these chapters. It's not with Samaria or the Ammonites. It's with the people of God in their own heart. And that's where your fight is on a daily basis, right? That's where my fight is on a daily basis. This is the essence of what, what spiritual warfare is in our life. Is this worth work, worth the fight? That's what we're asking ourselves and we have to believe it's worth it. Plodding along, getting it done, focused on the glory of God, sharing the gospel, risking, giving, sacrificing, agonizing prayer. Is The glory of God worth that work. And that's our fight on a daily basis. Will I trust God in the face of opposition and say, this is about God not me, and pray? Will I remember the gospel when I'm tempted to grumble and complain in the moment? Or will I say, no, I get to serve the God of heaven who has been faithful to me. Will I sacrifice for his glory? His glory's at stake. You will spend and you will be spent and you will exhaust yourself. There are things in your life that you wear yourself out over. You just got to fight to believe the glory of God's worth more than any of those things and be willing to serve and sacrifice for his glory. And sometimes the glory of God looks like building walls in Jerusalem, other times it looks like pulling potatoes in Peru. Sometimes it looks like digging storm drains in New Orleans, cutting out drywall in eastern Kentucky, going to class, organizing volunteers, pouring coffee, cleaning your house for BFG. Why? Because God has said, I'm going to be faithful to my people and my glory is at stake. And you say, I'm going to get to work for his glory. So that the gospel may move forward. So there may be a witness for the gospel in this city and other cities around the world. Sometimes it looks like changing diapers and paying bills. Why? God has given you a family and said the glory of God's at stake right here. Changing those diapers, paying those bills is worth his glory. Will you press forward? Because he has been faithful to give you that moment. Is the work worth the fight? We serve one who has been faithful to his work. He planned to build his church. He is one who has gone from heaven ruling and reigning to building tables with his adopted dad, to eating fish with disciples, to agonizing pain under the wrath of God on a bloody cross, now standing and ruling awake, Loving, caring, serving, working for his church. One who said, the work is worth it. Will you be faithful to him?